Exodus 34, 1 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The word of the Lord. Father in heaven, uh, as we come to your word now, it's our, our prayer. We're, we're going to ask you for something that you promised to say yes to, which is really, really great. Um, Jesus said uh, that if we ask you for the Holy Spirit, that you will give the Holy Spirit. So uh, boldly, unabashedly, we ask for the Holy Spirit. And even, it, it, and, and we ask for the Holy Spirit knowing that there's a way in which we don't know even know what we're asking for. That, that the Holy Spirit is a gift grander than our capacity to both desire or really grasp or understand, though we understand something of it. But Father, we ask you to give yourself to us and to do everything necessary, whatever it takes to make us receptive to you, do that work in us. We consent to it because we know that you are supremely valuable and we desire you and desire to desire you above all. So on this Pentecost, give us your Holy Spirit and keep pouring out your spirit upon us moment by moment and breath by breath. And especially as we consider your word now in Jesus name, amen. My man, all right team. So today is Pentecost. Uh, so happy Pentecost. Hooray! Um, now, I can imagine somebody saying, well, what's Pentecost? Great question. So Pentecost is the day when we remember um, a particular event that happened 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead. So 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, um, the, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, about 120 of them, they were all gathered together and they were praying. And it was a moment in which the church felt terribly weak. They felt terribly weak and they were waiting for something that Jesus said was going to come. Jesus said that there's going to be, they're going to have an experience of power and that the helper is going to come. They didn't really know what they were expecting. Um, but then all of a sudden on Pentecost, on this particular day, 
The power of the Holy Spirit came upon them. What's that? Well, it means at least this. As they were praying, the disciples of Jesus experienced enormous spiritual power that transformed their lives very, very quickly, and it motivated them to spend the rest of their lives spreading the message of Jesus Christ. And the result is that the Church of Jesus Christ was born and that the worldwide movement of Jesus was launched, and that has gone down the last 2,000 years to you and me and Emmanuel here. So Pentecost is a big deal. It's like the birthday of the church. But today, uh, I want to approach the question of Pentecost by asking this particular question. Here's the, here's the question. How do you know if the Holy Spirit, which was given at Pentecost, is working in your life? So if you're a follower of Jesus, um, uh, we expect that the Holy Spirit is going to be working in us. How do you know that that's actually occurring? So now, if you grew up in church, uh, it depends on the kind of church that you grew up in, but if you grew up in church, there are a lot of Christians who never really asked that question because for a lot of people who grew up in church, we just kind of assume that the Holy Spirit is working um, and it just kind of fades into the background. We don't really talk about the Holy Spirit a great deal. And if you are, if you don't have a church background, then the question, how do I know that the Holy Spirit is working in, in my life? Then that, that probably, that question has probably never even entered your mind. But I want to argue that all of us should ask that question really intentionally. How do I know and how do I recognize if the Holy Spirit is really working in my life? And here's why I want to argue that that's an important question for all of us. Last week, if you were with us, we said, do you remember? That God's best gift is always himself. The whole story of Christianity is about God giving, not just good things, but God giving God to his people. Uh, and God gives himself uh, first by sending Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God in person. Jesus reveals to us who God is. Jesus reconciles us to God through his death upon the cross. God gives himself first by giving us Jesus. But... God also gives himself to us by giving us his Holy Spirit, because God's Holy Spirit is fully God, just like the Father is God, just like Jesus is God. God's Holy Spirit is God, and God's Holy Spirit draw, uh, works in our lives to draw us into an animating uh, relationship of love with the Father and with Jesus. So... If it's true that God's best gift is always himself, then since the Holy Spirit is God, receiving the Holy Spirit is just the most important thing around. We need to receive the Holy Spirit. We need to grow in the Holy Spirit. So hence the question, how do we know that we're receiving the Holy Spirit and growing in the Holy Spirit? Now, Exodus is going to help us here. Yeah, the Exodus reading is going to help us. Why? Because... When we look at that story, we're going to find out that what God did in Moses in that story sets a pattern for what the Holy Spirit does at Pentecost and what the Holy Spirit always does in Jesus's followers. So what I want to do is look at Exodus and I want to show you four things, four indicators, four signs that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Ready? Here's the first one. The Holy Spirit makes the Lord clear and close. Here, let me explain. 
Remember where we are in the story of Exodus. So God rescues Israel from enslavement in Egypt. And then after that, God and Israel, do you remember this? They enter into a covenant with each other, a committed relationship, uh, more, um, more intimate than a contract, more binding than a friendship. However, just before this, all of Israel, having just entered into a covenant with God, all of Israel en masse, everybody, almost, almost everybody, except for Moses and Joshua, but pretty much all of Israel reject God and they commit, in a way, spiritual adultery. Um, they run out on God and they run to a golden calf that they manufactured. And this golden calf, a bit of a famous story, is kind of a mixed drink of, when it comes to gods. So they take a, a, a calf god from their Egypt days and they mix it with a little bit of what they knew about the Lord who had rescued them from Egypt. And they kind of mix it together and say, hey, let's have the best of uh, Egyptian religion and the best of uh, the Lord who rescued us from Egypt. And they try to mix it together. The thing is, um, the Lord who's talking to Moses while all this is going on, the Lord, the real Lord is not impressed at all with their made up God. And therefore the relationship between God and Israel just goes into a Chernobyl type meltdown. It's a disaster. But then do you remember Moses steps in, Moses intervenes. He acts as a mediator. And we've seen this over the last two weeks. In a, there's a remarkable reversal where uh, because of what Moses does, the Lord promises instead of divorcing Israel, the Lord promises to show mercy upon Israel and actually to give himself to Israel, not because they deserve it, but because he is so kind. And that's where we are when this story begins. But here's the thing with Moses. Moses is not an easily satisfied man. So just before this reading, Moses asked to see God's glory, which is like a big ask. Uh, Moses wants to get up right up at close with the Lord. Moses wants to be as close as possible to the Lord. And Moses wants to be cl as clear as possible about who the Lord really is. And that's what's happening in this story. Look at verse five. So Moses is standing on the mountain and the Lord, verse five, descends in a cloud. That's the cloud of God's glory, the cloud of his presence. It's not like moisture in the atmosphere. The cloud here is the cloud of the glory of God. The cloud settles down and the Lord stands with Moses. Now that, pause, that's close. But then, while the Lord is close to Moses, the Lord clarifies himself. He proclaims the name of the Lord, verse 5. Close and clear. Now, think about the, the phrase, the name of the Lord. Now, in the Bible, the name of the Lord is not just a verbal label for God. Um, the name of the Lord always is a way of describing the Lord's inner character. So in the Bible, you're not clear about the Lord and about his name until you're clear on who God really is, what God has done for his people, and how God is different from any of your expectations about him. You don't really know the Lord's name, who he is, until you know how the Lord is utterly unique. And that's why verse 6 when the Lord des, uh, describes or proclaims his name, he describes his character. Look at verse six. 
And the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clean, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, we should all memorize that verse. Why? Well, that verse is one of the most important verses in the Bible for describing and uh, summarizing and clarifying the God of the Bible. In fact, that verse gets repeated loads of times in the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. In fact, it's repeated in the Psalm that we, uh, that we said together earlier. Now, here's what I want you to, show, to see, Emmanuel. When the Holy Spirit is working in your life, one way you'll know it, one of the indicators will be this. You will find yourself right up against a God of holy love. The Holy Spirit always makes the Lord of verse six and seven vividly real to you. Now, I just use the word holy love. And I did that because it's the best way I know to summarize verses six and seven, the Lord's description of himself. Look at those verses. Do you notice the theme of love, right? Abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. Now, that phrase, steadfast love, that doesn't mean um, like warm, fuzzy feelings, right? Um, steadfast love in this context and all through the Bible means this. It means a committed loyalty to pursue the best for the person you love. Steadfast love is always expressed in action on behalf of the beloved very often in sacrificial action on behalf of the beloved. Now, the God of the Bible is limitless in that kind of love, that kind of steadfast love. And if you were to back out and look at the whole story of the Bible, if you were to trace out the story of the God of the Bible, you would find that the God of the Bible is constantly motivated by this steadfast love for his people. He's motivated by a limitless loyalty to pursue the best for his people. Now, the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is working in your life, the Holy Spirit makes us close and clear about that God of limitless love. Is the Lord doing that? But we need to keep going because this love, this steadfast love, this is important. It is not an indulgent love. We need to be, we need to be careful here because when the Holy Spirit brings us into the presence of God, we come into the presence of a God whose love is perfectly holy. Now, holiness here means God's unique and pristine moral perfection. And it means that God is a ferocious opponent of evil. Like for most of us, um, even if we don't say it this way, we think when we think of love, we think of love as kind of implying at least a little tolerance of evil. And, and that's part of the, um, the way we have to kind of bear with one another and stuff like that day in and day out. But we need to delete that idea from our view of God. God is patient, but verse seven, God's love 
forgives iniquity, but he will not clear the guilty. Now, what does that mean? Because it almost sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? It means at least this. The God of the Bible always requires a reckoning for evil. The God of the Bible never just kind of overlooks evil. He never looks, looks the, he never closes his eyes. He never just kind of looks the other direction. He never overlooks evil. At least he doesn't overlook it for long. He requires a reckoning. Now, the idea of reckoning is one that, that people are talking about a lot right now, right? Um, the Me Too movement uh, requires a reckoning for sexual exploitation. Over the last few years, there's been a, a massive movement, movement within our country to require a reckoning for racial uh, injustice. We, we're talking about reckoning a lot. Well, before all of that, and in, in, in a more comprehensive manner, the God of the Bible always requires a reckoning for every kind of evil we ever perpetrate. And the Holy Spirit makes the Lord clear to us and close to us. And when that happens, we find ourselves right up against a God of infinite love and also pristine holiness. And that explains why the Lord is both beautiful and frightening at precisely the same time. Now, let me ask. Think about yourself. Is the Holy Spirit drawing you to be clear and close with the Lord of holy love? Or, careful here, or are we tempted to make up a God who's a bit tamer or make up a God in our own image? Or maybe we want to do a little bit like Israel. We want to, we, we, we want to uh, pick and choose our favorite bits of uh, the various views of God that are running about. The work of the Holy Spirit will make us clear and close to a God of holy love. Now, let me add something here. This is the second point. So the Holy Spirit makes us makes the Lord clear and close. But then secondly, the Holy Spirit always does that through the word of God. Go back to the story. Do you notice that before the Lord um, comes close to Moses, he has Moses uh, prepare tablets for the Ten Commandments. Did you catch that at the beginning of the reading? The Ten Commandments is the first draft of what grows into our Bibles. And all through the scripture, whenever God's spirit works inside God's people, God's spirit is always bringing us back to and highlighting God's word, and in particular, his written word. Um, Jesus, in the gospel reading, calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. And one way the spirit is the spirit of truth is the spirit highlights the Bible. But the spirit spotlights God as God is presented in the Bible so that we can see God. Now, let's be careful. The Bible is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Bible. But the Holy Spirit always acts in a way that is in agreement with the Bible. And so that's another test that we can use for discerning the work of the Spirit in our life. Is the Holy Spirit making the Lord of holy love clear and close? And is he doing that through the scriptures? Or do we find ourselves tempted to kind of take the Bible and just kind of say, oh, it, mm, it, it, it's kind of, it's great for, for kind of yesteryear or, 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 or older traditional religion or, or, or I know it already. You know, and I don't need to keep on reading it because I, I know it already. I, I've known this all my life, you know. 
and they just say careful, okay? Because even if we alienate ourselves from the Bible in any way, we will end up distancing ourselves from the Holy Spirit. And we must not do that. Okay, so the Spirit of God makes the Lord clear and close. Number two, he does that through his word. And then number three, he does that in a way that always humbles the sinner. Um, do you notice how Moses, he meets God, he comes clear and close to God, and what does he do? He hits the deck. He gets down on his face before God. Now, read the rest of the Bible. That is really, really common. Whenever you come close to the Lord, we find ourselves on our face before him, sometimes literally, always in our hearts. Why? Because when the Holy Spirit makes us see the Lord of holy love, what happens is inevitably our guilt and our sin and our evil, which we are really good at camouflaging, that we're really good at hiding. When you get close to a, the Lord of holy love, it can't hide. It's going to be revealed. And therefore, when it gets revealed, we, we must do one of two things. We've got to hide from God. That's what Adam and Eve did with their fig leaves and junk like that. We either hide from God or we get humbled down to our core. Now, that's what happened on Pentecost. So in your mind, go to the New Testament, uh, Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus' disciples 50 days after his resurrection, what happens is Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, full of this spiritual power that um, uh, causes the Lord to be clear and close to him, he gets up and he begins to preach to a crowd that is gathered in Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing, team. In that crowd that Peter's preaching to, there were people who had participated in the killing of Jesus. And so as Peter proclaims God's word, the message about Jesus, this Holy Spirit starts working in the crowd as they hear Peter speak. And loads of the people in the crowd who had participated in Jesus's death, all of a sudden they see in a way they hadn't seen before, they seen the evil that they had perpetrated in killing Jesus or being complicit with the killing of Jesus. Previously, they hadn't seen the evil of killing Jesus. They thought they had been doing the right thing. But now as the spirit works within their hearts, they see in a way they hadn't before that they had perpetrated evil and they were cut to the heart. It says they were cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit always humbles the sinner. And so let's ask that question about us. Are we cut to the heart? Emmanuel, have you ever been cut to the heart for your sin? I know you have. Are you now? Is the Holy Spirit humbling you and convicting you because of the sin that's in your life? I'm not asking, are you loathing yourself? I'm asking, is the Holy Spirit humbling you before him? And if you are, if you feel that, then I know it's uncomfortable. It's distressing. And yet it's a really good sign. But on the other hand, I, I just need to ask the question, okay? Could it be that some of us are trying to evade that conviction? Could it be that I am trying to evade my guilt? 
Could it be that I'm explaining away some of my sin? Could it be that I'm increasingly confident that what others have called sin isn't really sin in my case, or at times have shifted, or what the Bible has to say about things don't really apply in my situation? Friends, if you, dis if you discern that going on in your mind or your heart, and all of us are tempted in that way, if that's happening in your mind or in your heart, I stay with all the love that is in my soul. That's what it sounds like when people are hiding from God. And sometimes it's called quenching the Holy Spirit. Emmanuel, don't do it. When the Holy Spirit makes the Lord clear and close, he does that through his word, and he does it in such a way that our sin is humbled, and we are humbled before the presence of Almighty God. But then lastly, and this is the fourth point, the Holy Spirit does all of that in such a way that grace becomes our joy. Go back to the reading. So Moses hits the deck in humility, but Moses is not cowering there. No, he hits the deck and he boldly from that vantage point asks for mercy. So when the Holy Spirit humbles a sinner, the Holy Spirit also at the same time draws the sinner to seek mercy. So the, remember, remember the Holy Spirit is the Lord of love, the Lord of holy love. And the Lord's holiness humbles us to the ground, but the Lord's love draws us and allures us out towards himself. The Holy Spirit is always doing both. So Moses is right up against holy love. He's humbled to the ground on behalf of the sin of his people. And from that vantage point, he is at the same time simultaneously bold enough to ask for mercy and grace and pardon. And guess what? The Lord grants it. Because the Lord loves to grant mercy and grace and pardon. Look at verse 10. The Lord promises to do greater things amongst Israel than he has ever done before. And he had already done some pretty good things like the Red Sea and the Passover and uh, defeating the greatest superpower of the day, Egypt, and bringing Israel out of enslavement. But nevertheless, the Lord, having seen the fullness of Israel's uh, rebellion and sin, yet in that moment, promises to do something even greater than any of them had ever imagined. He promises to pour out his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings us to a place where we enjoy the grace of God. But of course, if you're listening closely, there's a problem. Because the Spirit of the, of the Lord is holy love. And remember I said before that the Lord always requires a reckoning for sin. Where's the reckoning here? And there's a lot of reckonings in the book of Exodus. They're sprinkled throughout, but the greatest reckoning, Emmanuel, the greatest reckoning for sin happens when Jesus Christ comes. Because you will never see the holy love of God more vividly displayed and more perfectly unified than you see it at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, God in Christ died out of steadfast love. It was because the Lord is committed in loyalty to pursue the best for his people, even and especially when they don't deserve it. It was that steadfast love that led the Father and the Son bound together in the Holy Spirit to all agree to the plan of the cross. The cross is the perfect display of steadfast love. And at the very same time, the cross is the perfect display of God's holiness. 
and the reckoning for sin. Because on the cross, God was reckoning for the sin of all of us. Jesus Christ, fully God, but also fully human, voluntarily took upon himself the penalty of all human sin so that in the moment when he died, God was reckoning for sin by suffering the penalty in Christ himself. And so when you look at the cross, it is limitless love combined with pristine moral perfection, all united in one act of infinite self-sacrifice. And that explains why when the Holy Spirit is drawing us and working in our hearts, he's always drawing us to Jesus. In the gospel reading, Jesus says that the spirit is going to take what belongs to Jesus and declare it to us. And so in a very specific way, the Holy Spirit is always shining a spotlight on Jesus, especially Christ's cross. Because when the Holy Spirit makes Jesus and his cross clear, then we can see how it is that God doesn't clear the guilty. He requires a reckoning for it. And he reckons with our guilt himself through the death of Jesus. And so that it's through that reckoning with our sin on the cross that someone like me, a guilty one, can be forgiven. In fact, not only can we be forgiven through the cross, but we actually are counted to be, to be just as righteous as Jesus. And so when the Holy Spirit brings us, works in our hearts, he brings us close to Jesus. The Spirit makes Jesus clear and close. He does that through the word of God so that sinners are humbled to the ground and yet we don't stay there. The love of God draws us to the cross and there we stand under the grace of, of the Lord Jesus and we rejoice. We rejoice. And as we receive Jesus's mercy from the cross, we find ourselves in the presence of holy love and we are free to enjoy it. We are free to enjoy the beauty of Jesus with boldness and with confidence, even greater than with Moses. Do you realize that, Christian? Do you realize that if you belong to Jesus Christ, you have a greater access to God than Moses ever had? I love Pentecost. So Emmanuel, I ask you, do you recognize the work of the spirit in your life? And if right now you say, no, I don't, then to you I say this, drop everything. Drop everything and ask the Holy Spirit to invade your life. Ask God, say, God, do whatever it takes in me to make me receptive to your Holy Spirit. Do anything it takes, be it ever so severe, to make me receptive to the Holy Spirit, to make me say yes to Jesus Christ. Bring me clear and close to Jesus Christ. Drop everything and ask that because God is God's best gift and gaining God is the purpose of your life. Be like Moses and ask for God to give himself to you. And he loves to answer that prayer. And on the other hand, if you look at your life and you're like, yes, I do see something of the Spirit's work in my life, then I say this to you. Drop everything you're doing and ask for more. 
ask for a deeper work of the spirit in your life because God is God's best gift and he will pour out his spirit into you. And as we as a church move into this season where we are relaunching and uh, replanting in a sense, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us just like he did in the original disciples so that we can open our lips and declare and describe the beauty of Jesus Christ. And when we describe the beauty of Jesus Christ, we want to be a people who are describing someone we have seen, someone we have known, and as we describe someone we have seen and someone we have known through the power of the Holy Spirit, others will listen and hear and recognize that, yes, Emmanuel Church is a church that is up close with a God of holy love, and they will see something that they haven't seen otherwise, and they will come and they will know the God of the universe. And what greater privilege could it, could we have than to be the ones through whom people come and meet God? So ask for the power of the Holy Spirit, because we need him. And the Father loves to give him. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.